if you haven't noticed, we're living in our country in a time where things are changing. In other words, what it was like 20 years ago is not like it is today. What it was like 50 years ago is not like it is today. Our technology is increasing. Our morality is decreasing. Uh, we, have a, we live in a time where there is more information available than ever before. We have this thing called the internet where we can find information on just about anything, both good and bad. Yet somehow I think we find ourselves less educated than those that came before us. What was true 20 years ago is no longer true today. There are certain things that our society has compromised on, one of them being marriage. 20, just, just 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, it was between a man and a wife, but that's changed in our culture today. There are many things that were, accepted, were unacceptable morally 15, 20, 30 years ago that now today are, in a sense, celebrated. And that can breed confusion in your mind. Because why was it not, right, not accepted then? And why is it accepted today? Why was it untruthful then? Why, how do we reconcile this? Fortunately, I can tell you there is a place where unchanging truth can be found. There was a book that was written over the course of several thousand years. And it still contains the truths that you and I need to hear. Of course, I'm speaking of the Bible. Speaking of the scriptures, in the scriptures, God, the creator of mankind, issues truths. He issues promises and warnings that have not gone out of date. Isn't that a good thing? Aren't you glad that you can claim a promise of God out of scripture? He goes, no, not for you today. No, but Lord, you said you'd never leave me or forsake. Now, that, I didn't mean that on Wednesdays. Only on Sundays. Aren't you glad that they are unchanging? And while the critic may say, no, no, Rob, that's just your opinion. That, that's just what you think. That, that, that's, that's just your opinion. May I suggest to you that God's word is alive. It is active. It has not stopped. It has never stopped giving people hope. It has not stopped changing lives, and it never will. Praise the Lord for that. That's why we gather here to study, right? For if this really isn't God's word, then you're all wasting your time. I hate to tell you that. If you really don't believe the things that are true in here, that this, is, this gives me the model to live my life, this is what I want to achieve, this is what I want to learn more about, I believe God is my creator, he designed me to live a certain way, teach me, if you really don't believe that, you're kind of wasting your time this morning. Because you're going to look at everything I say and go, well, I don't really believe that. Or, I, don't, I don't think that necessarily applies to me. When we closed out chapter 12 of Hebrews, the last time I was here, we were reminded of a promise to Christians, to those who believe in Jesus Christ. And there in verse 28, it says this, chapter 12, verse 28. It says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Once again, the author is reminding us as Christians that we are part of a kingdom. Do you realize the culture around you is shifting? It's changing. But if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are part of a kingdom that is not changing. You're part of a kingdom that is not, cannot be shaken. It cannot be moved. It cannot be taken away from you. It will come to pass. You can count on it. You know what the future holds in your life. It's there. Don't you need to be reminded of that? Because as you walk through this world, you get your mind and your heart and your eyes focused on everything but these promises of God. And this uncertainty can creep in and this anxiety can build up and we don't know what to do. Go back on focus on what you know to be true, on who you know to be true, on the promises that you know that will not be shaken. And since we have this great hope as believers, since we're part of this eternal kingdom, while we're here, what do we do? We should be living our life in a certain way. We should be serving the Lord in a certain way. We should be doing the things the Lord has called us to do. He told us they're acceptable with reverence and with godly fear. There should be a desire for us to conform our life into the way that God wants us to live it. If you look at the Bible and you go, this is God's word, there's a God, he's my creator, he's given me instruction about my life, now I need to follow what he's telling me. It doesn't make any sense if you go, no, I don't believe that, but Lord bless me. We'll do something that I can bless. 
Live your life in a way that I'm telling you. And you have to get past the idea. You have to understand. You have to come to the notion that God loves you and he knows you best. And when he says do something, it's for your best interest. And when he says don't do this, it's not because he wants to withhold fun or excitement from you. He knows it's for your best interest if you don't do this. Do you really believe that? You see, if you do, when you come to those things in Scripture that convict you, you go, oh, i got to change. But when you come, if you don't really believe you come to those things in the scripture, you go, ah, that's not for today. It's not culturally relevant. It's closed-minded. It's not, it's not forward-thinking. Whatever you want to call it. As Christians, we need to understand there's a right way and a wrong way to live our lives. And when I talk about us serving the Lord, that, that's a word, that's a, that's a Christian phrase. We're going to serve the Lord. Well, what does that really look like to serve the Lord? Does it mean mean I have to go on a missions trip? I I know, he's going to the offering plate's coming around now. Yeah, he's going to serve the Lord with your wallet. No, no, we don't do that here. Money, the boxes in the back, if you want to give to the Lord, is between you and him. Well, what does it really look like? The way that you live your everyday life will tell you if you're serving the Lord or not. When you come across the truth, you go, I want to live that way. I need, maybe you don't get it right perfectly, but you go, this is what I want. This is the way I want to live my life. Then you're serving him. Serving the Lord begins with where you're at this very moment. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to buy anything. You don't have to download an app. You don't have to do anything except decide that I'm going to start living my life for Christ. You don't need to buy a book. You don't need to have a conversation with anybody. It's just a decision that you made that you're going to serve the Lord right where you're at in every aspect of your life. In your marriage, in your career, in your singleness, in your illness, whatever it might be, in your suffering, whatever it might be, whatever state you find your life in this morning, you have the ability to serve the Lord in. Or not to. It's entirely up to you. I know what you think. because I, I, As I listen to myself talk, I ask myself these same questions. Well, how do you do that? What does it look like? What does a Christian life really look like? How can someone... All right, you got me, Rob. How do I start serving the Lord this morning? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because as we come into chapter 13, it's going to be very, very practical application that should be appearing in the life of every believer. He's going to tell us, the author's going to tell us, this is what a Christian life should look like. And you then get to evaluate the person sitting next to you. No. You don't get to look at your husband or your wife and you can't say, well, I wish so-and-so would really hear this message. It's not for them, it's for you. It's for you this morning. You don't get to say, I, no elbows flying at the person next. This is, a, this is a message. This is a passage of scripture that you can look at and go, how am I doing with following God? Do I see these things in my life? If yes, praise the Lord. If not, you have the opportunity to change it. That's the beautiful thing about the Lord. In some areas, I got to warn you, you might be convicted. You might go, ooh, I'm really falling short in that area. But you have the opportunity to change it realizing that we're all a work in progress at no point can any of us in any part of many of this area go oh yeah i got all of that down it's not true it's not true you're lying to yourself you're fooling yourself but no matter where we're at in our walk with the lord if we'll look at these things and go lord is there something that you're convicting me on you see and and the thing is the reason i made the little joke about the person next to you is you probably know the person that you came with this morning and you know where they fall in these areas there's a tendency to want to poke them and say, hey, look, you need to listen. But really the heart that says I want to grow and serve the Lord says, Lord, is there something you would have to say to me this morning? Is there something that you would want to minister to me in my life as I grow closer to serving you? You see, there's a world outside, and, and maybe some in here I don't know, that, have, that say we don't want anything to do with God. We don't want to do anything to do with the Lord. And they're, they're, they're coming after those that do in fast pursuit. The freedoms that we enjoy are, are only, for, we only enjoy them as long as the government gives them to us. The government can take them away. The freedom of speech is part of our Constitution, but it can be removed with the right amount of votes or whatever. It can be taken away at some point if the government chose to do that. So let's pick up in chapter 13, verse 1 of Hebrews, as we see what the Christian life should look like. Remember, the author of this book is writing to believers. They've come to faith in Christ. Some of them were struggling with going back to Judaism. But he wants to encourage them as he closes out this final section of the book. He says this in chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers. For by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them. 
those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Wow. You know, since I wasn't here last week, I had two weeks to think about this scripture. So we're only getting through five verses this morning. Longer time, I get more out of it. Shorter time, we go through cover more verses many times. But as I started, I was going to cover about half the chapter, and I thought, you know, there's just too much in here for me to cover too quickly. The author begins by saying, let brotherly love continue. Remember, he's writing to a group of Jewish Christians. There's a natural assumption here that they are, brotherly love is part of their fellowship. It's among them. But he wants to encourage them to continue in it because he knows that it's possible for them not to continue in it. It's possible that it doesn't continue. Well, what exactly is brotherly love? That's that's kind of a nice little word or phrase, but what does it really mean? If you've been around Calvary Chapel, Cumberland for a while, you know that one of the things I like to do in Bible study is go back to the original Koine Greek language and say, hey, what did this word mean back in the Greek? What does the original language say about this word? And it helps us understand the scriptures. And, and not that I could speak original Greek because I can't. I can't even speak modern day Greek. But what I've learned to do is use the modern day resources that tell me what these things mean. Read the modern day authors and, and some of the older authors that, have, that, are, that are these Greek scholars that can tell us more information. I just pass that information along to you. And if you've been here long enough, you know that, hey, when, we read in my, when I read in my New King James Version of the Bible, I see the word love. I know that there's four different words for love in the Greek. So I have to go back and say, which kind of love is he talking about? Brotherly love, what kind of love is he talking about? Well, that makes a difference. And just if you're not aware, the first word for love, or you can put them in any order you want, the first one I wrote down here is eros. It's where we get our word for erotic. It's a sexual type love. That's not what he's talking about here. Okay, so someone that would want to turn brotherly love into a sex, that's that's not the word. He did not use that Greek word there. That's not what he's talking about. Another word is storge. It's, it's more of a familiar mother-daughter, mother-son, father-son you know, relationship. It's more, of, it's more of that family, that familiar parent-to-child relationship. Another word, and that's not the word that's used here either, by the way. Another word that probably you are familiar with, you've heard it, is called agape. Agape love. And agape love is an unconditional love. It's the most powerful word for love that we have in the New Testament. And it describes God's love for us, and it describes the love that we can have as God's love flows through us towards others. One author said this, he said, it is a love that loves without changing. It is self-giving love that gives without demanding or expecting repayment. It is a love so great that it can be given to the unlovable or unappealing. It is a love that loves even when it is rejected. Agape love gives and loves because it wants to, It does not expect or demand repayment from the love given. It gives because it loves. It does not love in order to receive. Agape love isn't about feelings. It's about decisions. Wow, that's not the word here either. It's not not eros. It's not storge. It's not agape. Well, what is it? It's Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Pennsylvania has a city, Philadelphia, the city of... Ah, I see you guys figured it all out already. Brotherly love. The word here that's used in the scriptures is Philadelphia. When the author is calling them to have brotherly love, it means they're to have a fondness for one another as brothers. A closeness that they have because it forms around a common bond, because they're in the same family. This fellowship should be built around the fact that they're brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Have you noticed, or at least I've noticed in my family, I have three boys and a girl, and all three of my boys have different personalities. There's a love that exists between them, and a hate sometimes, but there's a love, there's a bond because they're part of the same family. It's our family, it's our bond. He's telling the believers, you guys as believers in Christ, speaking to us as well, there needs to be a bond within within Christianity of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now I just need to point out, he didn't say Calvary Chapel there. 
He didn't say the Baptist church there or the Presbyterian. Brothers and sisters, brotherly love means those of us that are in faith in Jesus Christ. Certainly that applies to you and I here in this church, but doesn't it also apply to the believers that are outside of this church? Our fellow believers in Jesus Christ? Of course it would. Unfortunately, all too often, instead of continuing in brotherly love, we get wrapped up and we argue about our doctrinal, about our positions. Instead of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ coming together in unity and trying to, not saying that we don't have differences and not saying those differences aren't valid, but all too often those differences become the thing on display and we find ourselves arguing rather than extending brotherly love because we want to be right. We want to prove them wrong. We want them to come to our side of things. In order to illustrate this point, I read this cute little story and I'll read it to you. And many, Maybe you've had a conversation like this, I don't know. But there was a man, he was walking across the Golden Gate Bridge when he saw a man about to jump off. He said, I tried to dissuade him from committing suicide. And I told him simply, hey, God loves you. And I noticed that a tear welled up in his eye. And I asked him, are you a Christian? And he said, yes. I said, well, me too. Are you Protestant or are you Catholic? He said, well, I'm Protestant. I said, well, me too. What denomination are you? Well, I'm Baptist. And I said, me too. Are you Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Hmm, Northern Baptist. Well, are you Northern Baptist? Are you Northern Conservative Baptist or are you Northern Liberal Baptist? Well, I'm a Northern Conservative Baptist. Amazing, I said. We have all this in common. We should call Ripley's, believe it or not. This is incredible. Wait a minute. Are you a Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist? Or are you a Northern Conservative Reformed Baptist? Well, I'm a Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist, of course. Remarkable. Are you a Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes region? Or are you a Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Eastern region? Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes region. This is a miracle. Unbelievable. All right, one more. Are you a Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes region council of 1879? Or... Are you a Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He said, I'm a Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. He replied, die, you heretic, and he pushed him off the bridge. (laughs) How many of our conversations with fellow believers go that way? Where you end up leaving because you're arguing over something. And it becomes an argument that you just want to win. Rather than dividing the body of Christ with labels and factions, we're to let brotherly love flow to the person sitting next to you, to your fellow believer at work or wherever you might be. We're still going to have differences, and many of those differences are valid. It's okay. Brothers can have different personalities. They can have different goals and different, even the different beliefs, but they're still brothers. That brotherly love is still a bond that, pushes, that keeps them together because they're from the same family. Don't lose sight when it comes to your fellow Christians that although you might be a little bit different, that you're from the same family. Have you noticed that in church you can meet two people who have absolutely nothing in common outside of church? It's a good, it's a good, a church should be diversified. There should be a place where if if every, if all of us were alike, we all had the same interests, there would be no diversification. We're we're missing something. We're we're missing a different perspective. We're missing the understanding of helping us see something that we didn't see it the way, the way that, the way it should be seen. But if all of your conversations with fellow believers end in, a, end in an argument, or even start in an argument, then you really need to ask yourself, am I continuing in brotherly love? Or have I become more focused on being right and being more knowledgeable and pride is welling up because I want them to see what I see and if I'm smarter than they are, I can convert them to what I believe. Let's focus on the brotherly love that he's telling them there too. In verse two, the author tells us something that we should be doing as we wait on this eternal kingdom. He says this, do not forget to entertain strangers. For by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. One of the ways that you can practically exercise brotherly love is to show hospitality. Hospitality. In the ancient culture, if you were to go on a journey, if you were to go on a trip, You couldn't pull into Holiday Inn Express and get a room for the night and wake up refreshed in the morning. There was no Hampton Inn. There was no 
Google or Expedia or that you could just plan out your trip and stops along the way. You couldn't even pull up the radar app to see if it was going to rain or what the weather was going to be like. You just went. And you trusted that the Lord would provide and that Christians, your fellow believers, would come alongside and show hospitality. In fact, if there was a place like a hotel or a boarding house, it was usually focused around sexual immorality. It was a place that you didn't want to be. You relied on your brothers and sisters' hospitality to show you or to feed you or to open their homes to you to provide for you. Hospitality is still an important part in many cultures. How hospitable are you? Who have you provided for? Who have you allowed stay in your home? Who have you, brought, who have you had over for dinner? Who have you had over for a barbecue? Well, I can't cook. All right, have them over for dessert. I can't bake. Have them over for coffee. I don't like coffee. Have them over for water. You can do that. It's amazing when you meet someone and you'll find someone in church, hey, can you, what are you doing for lunch? Let's go to lunch somewhere else. Let's go to somebody else's house. They're a better cook than we are. Okay, well, I'll go there. Make sure you tell them they're coming. But it's, it's that you build that bond, that connection with them. Now, I got to tell you, some people look at this verse and they think, uh-oh. On the way to church this morning, I, I saw a hitchhiker on the side of the road and I, that could have been an angel. I passed up an angel. Yeah, maybe you did. I don't know. It's possible. He's still standing there waiting for, you want to go back? If anybody gets up from here on out, I'm thinking you're going to get the angel that you passed up. No, listen, I don't think that's the case. I don't think you have to go bring every homeless man into your home. I don't think that every person you see hitchhiking is an angel. I don't think everybody, that just because everybody asks or says or does something means you have to respond. When Abraham entertained angels, it seems to me he realized there was something supernatural about them in the scriptures. He called for the, for, for the meal to be prepared. There was something different. And when these same angels went on into Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot realized there's something different. He actually offered his own daughter to the men that were coming after, the, after these angels, these men. There was something different. There was something supernatural there. Other times in the scriptures, when people see angels, they always have to say what? Do not be afraid. Why? Because they're afraid. Or people fall down and worship. They've got to get up. Don't worship me. I'm just an angel. Yeah, but you're pretty cool. No, get up. Worship the Lord. Yeah, but you're an angel. No, it doesn't matter. And over the years, I've heard many stories about people interacting with possible angels. Hey, I, they, they'll all usually come to me and they'll say, hey, I've, I've got this thing that happened. Do, do you think it was an angel? I don't know. I could be. It's certainly clear in the scriptures that it's certainly angels can interact with humans, although I believe it's only as the Lord directs them because under the, under the Lord's authority, you can't call an angel to you. It doesn't work that way. But if for some reason I've heard stories of children seeing angels, I've heard different things, I'm not going to say they're not real. Certainly the scripture lives, lays a precedence for some interaction. We see it modeled and we see it here as well. Personally, this got me a lot of points in the first service. The only angel I've ever interacted with is my wife. That I know of. You know, All the husbands, you feel free to use that later. Hospitality is very important in the biblical culture, in the Christianity. How are you doing at hospitality? Are you the person that wants to run away from people and not have them over? Or are you the person that's always opening your home? And let me just say before we go any further, as we go across these first five verses, there's going to be some things you might look at and go, yeah, I'm doing good there. Others you're going to look at and go, oh boy, I'm struggling there. And that's okay. That's okay. We're all in different places with the Lord at the same time. This is all just to encourage us and to help us grow. Verse 3 gives us some more practical instruction. It says this, Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. The author says, Remember the prisoners like you're chained up with them. In other words, treat them like you're chained with them, like you're chained right next to them. Now, the, the, who's he talking about here? I think the intent of the author here is referring to those people who have been imprisoned for the gospel, for those who have been imprisoned for their faith. He's not saying that Christians have a responsibility to remember or to care for all prisoners. That's not what this is giving us. However, I do believe we see a biblical mandate, a biblical draw for us to be concerned with ministering in the life of prisoners, whether it be someone who's a believer or not a believer. There's still, a, you know, oftentimes when someone finds themselves incarcerated, it will many times, maybe not the first time, but the second or the third time or many times, it'll bring them to a place where they seem to be at the lowest in their life, where they're willing to listen because they realize that the life I've been living hasn't worked out so well. Can you have something better to offer? I do. I do. Jesus Christ has something better to offer to you. He really does. And so we're, I do believe there's a scriptural position where we have to minister to prisoners. 
You know, Rob, how do we do that? We have a radio station that goes into every wall of every prison in our area. Do you realize that? They can, I, I got the blessing of reading a, a letter this morning that was written from someone in a local prison saying how they love listening to the radio station and what a blessing it is to them. I get them we get them pretty regularly. And, and what a blessing is. We have Wayne here goes into every Wednesday, he goes into the jail and he ministers to the prisoners. He just ministers to them. He's just there. They want to talk, they want to pray, he's there. Now you can't do that. You can't go, you can't walk to the local jail today after church and go, I want to go minister to the prisoners. They're not going to let you in. Or if they let you in, they might not let you out. That's a bad place to be. But if the Lord opens those doors, as he has in Wayne's case and in the radio station's case, we get a chance to minister to them. It's, a minute, it's, it's, it's an opportunity for us to minister. And the reason he's telling them that is, guys, you need to think of it this way. If they were in chains for their faith, you could be in chains for your faith. In other words, this is the people he's referring to, those who have been arrested. You yourselves are in the body also, he's saying. It just as well could have been you. And do you realize that just a few bad decisions in your life, maybe there's some things you didn't even get caught for, and it just as well could have been you that was in there. He said, consider that fact as you think of those that are incarcerated. Minister to them. Bring the hope of the gospel. Bring the good news to them. And then as we come to verse 4, the author wants them and he wants us to know that marriage is an honorable institution. But he also wants them to know that sexual intimacy inside of marriage is special. It is designed by God. But sexual intimacy outside of marriage is condemned by God. He said, Rob, if I'd have known you were going to talk about that today, I wasn't going to come. Well, that's your fault because I always keep going in the next part of Scripture. You should read ahead. <laughs> Verse 4 says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. In this single verse, the author is calling for sexual purity. Boy, do we live in a culture that needs to hear that. Don't you think? We live in a sexually charged culture. Listen, let me just lay it out for you logically, guys. Let me just see if I can... If, if, if you believe that God is your creator, if you believe that, and you believe that God is our creator, designed us to live and act a certain way, and God designed marriage to be between a man and a woman. The scriptures are clear on that. And God designed sexual intimacy between, to be between a man and a woman in marriage after they're married. Wouldn't you think the reason he does that is because he knows what's best for us? Doesn't that just logically make sense? But why doesn't anybody follow that? Why does that seem to be the odd person that would follow something like that instead of the, the norm? You see, when it comes to this topic... Many times our culture, or people in our culture, even Christians sometimes, would say, get with the times. Things, things, things have changed. You need to have an open mind. God gives me the desire, so I just, I just live it out. And you do have that choice. But here's what I want to say. If God is our creator, knows what's best for us, he says, I'm going to put some boundaries here. I, I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to cross this line. Don't you think that there's good reason for that? As a parent, would you ever let your children play in traffic? No. What if they want to? But you don't know how much fun it's going to be. I want to play Frogger. I'm going to bounce across the street, and I'm going to jump across the street and try not to get hit by a car. No, you would not let your kids do that. It's dangerous. Isn't that God doing the same thing? Saying, guys, you, you, I've, I've made this intimacy in marriage to be a beautiful and wonderful thing, but if you, if you go using it outside of marriage, it's, it's going to get messy. It's going to get difficult. It's going to get hard. You're, you're, going to, you're not going to like it. I'm you, you might think you will, but it's going to lead you places that you didn't want to go. Our culture tells us just the opposite, doesn't it? Our culture would say, be who you want to be. Do what you want to do. There's no reason to control your desires, or your impulses. Don't whatever. If you're a man and feel like being a woman, then be a woman. If you're a woman and feel like being a man, then whatever. Everything's right and everything's celebrated. You're, you're, it's pride. It's, it's, you're a hero. Do you realize if there's no standard of right and wrong, or if that standard is always shifting, how do you know what's right and wrong? If, if, if roughly 12 years ago, marriage was between a man and a woman, and now we've shifted that, which one is true, then or now? What, what is it next week? You can marry your pet. That's happening, by the way. It is. Read about it online in California if you're interested. People are marrying their pets. 
Because why? Because there's been no standard. It's changing. It's whatever I feel like doing. And when you go down that road, if it becomes relevant to whatever I feel like, where do you draw the line? Because it's just how I feel. And who are you to tell me that what I feel is wrong? That's the argument. Well, how do you tell a child molester what he feels is wrong? Well, no, 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 don't go there. What about a serial killer? Because they kind of enjoy that stuff. Well, no, no, that's not, that's not acceptable. How, if you've changed the standard, if you've shifted it to whatever somebody feels, how do you then say, no, that's where we're going to draw the line? You see, that's what's beautiful about God's word. It hasn't changed a bit. Just as relevant then as it is today. The standard is still the same. What's right is right. The, the, the standard is the standard. What's right is right. What's wrong is wrong. It hasn't shifted. How do you tell somebody like a child molester or a serial killer, your impulse to do that is wrong if there is no standard of truth. If the standard of truth is created by man and it's able to be shifted by man, how, how do you know? Then man can change it to say whatever he wants it to say. And here's the argument I get. I've talked to people about that. They say, no, no, you, you, you've gone too far. That, that's, that's against the law. Well, the law changes. We have, meta, we have mar- marijuana's legal now. It wasn't legal a few years ago. We can, sh- we can change the law to say whatever we want. That's, we, put the, we vote our politicians in office. We can change the law. That's up to us. The standard shifts. We can shift that standard as well. We could make opiates legal too if we wanted to. We could make anything legal if we, if we have enough people behind it. If the standard's shifting, how do you know what the truth is? And people would say, no, no. When it comes to those examples you gave, like a serial killer or a child molester, they're, they're hurting people. I'm not hurting anybody by my doing what I want to do. Let me just say that's a very close-minded view because if you don't believe that the woman who is stuck in prostitute because of a drug addiction is being hurt because of the position she's in and being taken advantage of by the position she is, she's by the people who are abusing her, then you're severely misunderstanding what's taking place. If you think pretty woman was a real life story, you, 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 you're living in a dream world somewhere because that was not a real life story. That was a made up story to glamorize something that should never be glamorized. That's just the way the reality is. I told you at the beginning, the Bible contains truths that have not gone out of date. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for that because the things I teach my children will still be true when they're teaching their children and their children are teaching their children and their children are teaching their children. If we keep going the course that we're on, what will be the truth? What will be illegal? What will be illegal? Where, where, will it, where will it stop? Where will it end? Guys, the reality is sexual immorality and promiscuity, they're nothing new. It's not like we, we're not the first culture to have this problem. This book was written in the first century, and it's addressing the same cultural issues that we have today. Do you realize that? It's talking about marriage and intimacy outside of marriage. And you, well, that's just brand new. No, it's not brand new. It's been going on for years. Your parents did it. Their parents had it. Their parents had it. Back here in Jesus' time, they're writing about it. It's been going on for years. It's nothing new. But just because someone has a hard time living up to the standard, does it mean we change the standard? Do we just drop it? Do we, nah, we don't worry about that. Let me, let, me, let, me paint, let me paint a different picture for you. Just walk through this with me. Can you imagine? Now, we live, you know, I don't need to have a, a talk about the birds and the bees. You guys got all that, right? Everybody's an adult in here, okay? But can you imagine for a moment if a couple were to do things God's way? Can you imagine what sexual intimacy would be like between a young man and a young woman if they had never seen a pornographic image or a pornographic movie? Never watched a rated R movie, never saw the sexually charged sitcom on television, never lived in a sexually charged culture. Can you imagine how innocent and pure their wedding night would be? It would be somewhat comical. They'd have to figure out what to do. It would, be, it, would be, it, would be, it would be beautiful between them. It would be, it, they, they wouldn't know anything else. There would be no outside influences chart, you know, leading them down a certain path. As they had the opportunity to explore each other's innocence together. Imagine what that would be like when it comes to this area of our life, our culture, and even Christians will often say, there's no reason to restrain your passions and your desires. They would say, ah, they're only natural. But let me tell you something. If you don't restrain your passions and your desires, 
if you set out to fulfill your passions and your desires, they will turn into, I'll just call it baggage that you will take with you from one relationship to the next. The things that you do today, in, you try to take that, if you're involved in sexual relationships before marriage, you're going to take that into marriage. If you're stuck in pornography, even in your marriage, it's getting drug into your marriage. It's becoming baggage that you, that you do. If you don't restrain those urges, it's going to build and build and build and build and build. It becomes more and more and more, and it stacks up and it stacks up and it stacks up. And you go, Rob, that little example that you gave, that's, that's like living in a dream world. That doesn't happen today. But I can assure you that I believe this. If you're a young person, you say, I'm going to do that. I'm going to live that way for the Lord. And someone might say, well, you won't find anybody else. Yes, you will. God will honor that decision. And he'll bring that right person for you at that time. He'll, he'll, he'll do that for you. But our culture wants to tell us no. And then often I run into this. People say, Rob, that's a nice idea. But it's not a reality. It's too late. It's too late. Been there, done that. I, I, you, don't, you don't know. I, I, it's too late for me. I've already blown it. Let me just say to you that... I believe that when you take a stand and you're to do what's right, the Lord has a way of healing and removing all the things from our past. It might not be instantly because I was that person. I didn't, I wasn't a Christian before I got married. I did I was very much in the world. I was doing all the things that Christians shouldn't do. But you know, what? as I started following the Lord, the Lord began to heal some of that, I'll call it baggage, some of that stuff that gets drugged into a marriage. The Lord, be, it had to be dealt with the Lord began to heal from it. And I can tell, tell you now, as a Christian man and married to a Christian woman, our relationship is better than it was when we were dating when we first got married. Oftentimes it's just the opposite, isn't it? Especially when it comes to intimacy. Have you noticed that two people can't keep their hands off each other before they get married? Two Christians can't keep their hands off each other before they get married. And once they get married, what happens? They seem to be pushed by the wayside many often. Oftentimes and many times one's interested and the other's not for whatever reason. There's, there's baggage that comes in. There's, there's problems that have been brought that way. If you are struggling, I will be honest with you and open with you. If you're, if you're in a marriage and you're struggling with pornography, that is affecting your relationship with your husband or with your wife. And it's not just guys anymore. It, it's affecting you. If you're single and you're struggling with it, it, is affect, it will affect your marriage, I'm telling you right now. You can't just forget it. You can't forget the things that you watch. You can't, oh, I never saw that. Yes, you did. God can heal it. God can take it away. But it's going to take some time, and it's going to take you restraining those emotions to move forward on it. One other note on intimacy within marriage. I don't know if you caught it in this verse. The marriage bed is undefiled. Yes, God allows the freedom of sexual intimate expression between a husband and a wife. But... I have to say this, you have to explore that freedom with the concern of the needs of each other. It never goes beyond where the other one is comfortable. It never goes beyond, it never pushes someone to do something they don't want to do. There has to be a comfort level there on both parts. It's not just a freedom to do whatever you want. It's something that there, there, there's, a, there's a freedom there, and, and, it's not, and the bed's not defiled, but it has to be within reason. It has to be within nature. It has to be within that, that both people are comfortable. It doesn't mean you get to just, uh, come on, I'll do whatever I want. No, it doesn't work that way. And I just have to say it again, guys. Pornography should never be a part of your marriage. And, you know, I know that's not talked about much in church, but pornography is running rampant in our culture. There are, play, there are non-Christians that are realizing the problems pornography is causing that have come out and in some place they've declared it an epidemic because it's ruining marriages. It's ruining intimacy between husbands and wives because they can get it everywhere else. And the worst part is they can get it in secret. If it's part of your life, it needs to stop. Let today be the day that you change that, that you begin saying, I'm going to live for the Lord and not in that realm. It is fake. It is not real. Don't ever think that it is. And I know that people say, I can't believe you talk about that in church. We need to talk about it in church. We need to realize this is a real problem in our culture. It's an addiction like any other addiction. It is dealt with the same way through the blood of Jesus Christ. He died to set you free from it. You don't have to be bound to it. You can be set free. And the moment you're set free, he will begin to work in your marriage and, and build that relationship. Whether, it's, whether you're single or not, he will begin to prepare you for the relationship. If you're, married, if you're married, he will begin to work and change in that relationship. It doesn't mean it's easy, but the baggage that you carry with you can be dealt with. Don't just say, ah, oh, it's just, oh, well, it's too late. No, it's never too late. 
Don't let it just go on and on and on. Verse uh, 5, as we come into verse 5, once again we get some relevant and practical instruction. He says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The word covetousness, it literally means love of money. Love of money. But it can be applied to love for just about anything. You can covet somebody's marriage. You can covet their life, their children, their job, their intellect. You can covet just about anything. But many times our covetousness centers around if I had the money, then I would be happy. If I had the money, then I could get. And because it's money, it's usually keeping us from what we want. It's the covetousness of the money that that brings it together. You always tend to think, if I had a little more money, then I would be happy. Then I, would be, then I could be content if I had a little more money. Someone once asked a millionaire, Bernard Baruch, he lived from 1870 to 1965, had a lot to do on Wall Street in the 20s and the 30s. They asked him this question, how much money does it take for a rich man to be satisfied? How much money does it take for a rich man to be satisfied? Hmm, that's a good question. You know what he said? Just a million more than he has. Just another million. In other words, if you've ever been around a culture, or been around someone who's wealthy and whose focus is money, do you know what they want? More money. What? When you, if you've ever charted somebody's life, they make the first million. What do I need? I need the second million. I need the third million. I can't retire. I can't live my lifestyle like this. I need the fifth million. I need the tenth million. What do I need to be happy? Another million dollars. Covetousness is the opposite of contentment. And typically it's focused around money. Do you know that contentment can never come from having more money? Are you aware of that? You know that? You, you think, well, if I could just get my debt paid off, then I'd, be, then I'd be content. No, you wouldn't. Well, if I could just find a spouse, then I'd be, no, you wouldn't. If I could just get a better job, then I, no, no. If people would just see me who I am, then I, no, you wouldn't. Co- contentment does not come from money. You believe the lie if you think it's true. If I only had, then I would is nothing but a lie. Because once you get, then you have. You know what you need? Something else. It never satisfies. Finances and physical stuff can never satisfy your heart. Have you realized that yet? Or are you still chasing it? Have you, have you come to the place where you realize, ah, you know, I'm not going to be satisfied by finances. You know what will satisfy your heart? Or should I say, you know who will satisfy your heart? The Lord Jesus Christ. He'll satisfy your heart. Money won't do it. But watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. It sneaks up in you. You can, you can calculate, you can finance, you can argue yourself into any position you want in life. You can justify and rationalize just about anything. You can, you can buy stuff because it's a good... Because, have you ever heard this? It was on sale, so God must have wanted me to have it. No, it's on sale every week. Well, I'm being a good steward, so I'm buying it on sale. No, you're being a good steward. Don't buy it at all because you don't need it. You see, that's the balance that we face. Rob, are you saying that we shouldn't have nice things? I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that we as Christians can't enjoy nice things. Don't misunderstand that. What I'm saying is that's not the focus of our life. When I, if I, let me ask you this question. Why do you wake up every morning and go to work? Why do you wake up every morning, you spend 40 hours a week or more at your job, and you, you work there, you labor there, you put up with a boss that you don't like, except for Kevin and Jordan. You put up with a boss that you don't like. You, you have to take lunch. You, you don't like any of that stuff, but you go there all the time. Why? If it's so that you can have a nice house, if it's so that you can have a nice car, if it's so that you can have a this or a that or a vacation, that's covetousness. But understand something. You can take two people, both with the same stuff, both of them driving new cars, both of them with big houses, both of them. One of them goes, I'm doing it to support this. The other goes, I'm doing it to to serve the Lord, and the Lord's just blessed me with it. And if it all falls apart, I'm okay with that. Well, how do you know which one you are? When the Lord starts taking things away from you, you'll find out who you are. The Lord says, you can't have that anymore. And you go, and you hold on tight. I'm not letting it go. I'm not letting it go. I'm not letting it go. I won't let it go. You see, if you're following the Lord, you're fine. It's, it was his in the first place. Let him have it. It's his. Go ahead, Lord. Whatever you want to do. You want me to, you want me to sell the big house, move to the small house? Cool, whatever. You want me to sell the big car, move to the small car? Great, whatever you need, Lord. But so often our flesh wants to hold on to those things, and it becomes that covetousness. 
As Christians, we have one of the wealthiest promises somebody could ever obtain. God himself said this, and did you catch it? I will never leave you or forsake you. How many people need to hear that this morning? I will, God says to you, if you're a Christian, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. If you're not a Christian, you should become one just for that promise. I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. This was a great comfort to these early Christians. They were living in a day and age where man was taking everything they owned, taking their goods, their houses, their businesses. And in many cases, it was happening to their friends and neighbors and family members. It was happening there. Man could turn against them, but they had the promise that God never would. That no matter what was happening, God would be with them. In fact, they knew that they were safe from the fear of man, for man could do anything to them apart. They, man could not do anything to them apart from God's will. They were safe from that. Even if man took all of their finances, God promises to provide for my food. He's going to provide for my family. He's going to provide. God would still promise to meet their needs. And because you and I have the promise that the Lord will never leave you, will never forsake you, you can boldly say, right there, read it, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? There is nothing that man can do to you that God cannot overcome, even unto death. Therefore, I will not fear. Now, we don't call it fear because that's not a very strong word in our society. No, nobody will say, I'm afraid. You know what they say? I'm anxious. I'm worrying. I'm nervous. Those are all words for fear. I, I, I have anxiety. I, I, I'm, I'm afraid. You know, we, we like to mask it with something that sounds better. But the truth is you're afraid about what might happen to you. You're afraid about what might happen to someone else. But when you're in the Lord, you can say, I trust the Lord's got this under control. He's handling it. I can say, I can say the Lord is my helper, which means he's helping me. He knows what's best for me. He's going to handle the situation. I will not fear what can man do to me. Maybe this morning you're facing an uncertainty in life. Maybe there's a situation that you can't overcome in your own strength. Maybe you find yourself facing something that is out of your control. You can still say, I will not fear. I'm not afraid. I'm not worried. Why? Because God has this. And even if, they, even if my health fails, if my finances diminish, if everything, if they kill me, I'm going to be with the Lord. I'm going to be with him. It's okay. I'm with him. A woman once said to evangelist D.L. Moody, she said this. said, I have found a promise that helps me when I am afraid. He said, what's that? She said, Psalm 56, 3, when I'm afraid, I will trust in thee. And D.L. Moody responded, I have a better promise than that. She said, what's that? He said, Isaiah 12, 2, I will trust and not be afraid. He said, wait a minute, those two verses, they contradict. No, no, these are both promises and true, and each one has their own application. When you find yourself in fear or anxiety, you go back to trust. But if you'll trust, you never have to get to anxiety. That's what he's talking about there. Both promises are true, each with their own application. The important thing is that we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and our helper and that we not put our trust in material things. That's not what we're focusing on. Contented Christians are people with priorities and material things are not high on that priority list. Let me say that again. Contented Christians are people with priorities. But the material things of this world are not high on that list. What are your priorities? Are you, do you find yourself content? And again, please don't misunderstand for contentment saying, I can't advance myself. I can't go further. Yes, you can. Advance yourself. Go further. Just do it in the strength and the will of the Lord. As Christians, just to summarize our message this morning, as Christians, we're to continue in brotherly love. We're to be hospitable, even knowing that we might be entertaining angels someday. We're to remember the prisoners because it could have been you. We're to know that marriage is an honorable institution, even though our culture would tell us otherwise. We're to know the marriage bed is undefiled. And we're also to remember that fornicators and adulterers will be judged. And if you find yourself convicted by that last statement, know that you can, you can remove yourself from that category anytime you want. It's just a matter of repentance and turning back to the Lord, saying, Lord, forgive me. And he says, I will. And you move forward not living in that same category. That's what our God does. And lastly, he says, let our conduct be without covetousness. We're to be content with what we have. Are you content with what you have or do you always have to have more? 
because God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you, we may boldly say, you may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. Do you realize that he's your helper? He's my helper. I will not fear. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live in anxiety. You don't have to. You don't have to take a pill for it. You can go to the Lord. He'll provide all that you need. He's your helper. What could man do to me? I pray that you all are challenged this morning by these, just these five verses. If you're anything like me, there's some you look at and go, wow, I do that really well. Other things you go, ah, thanks, Lord. I forgot a spiritual spanking. But that's why we come and study the scriptures together so that we become encouraged and lifted up. But also there's a time and a season for rebuke. And in those seasons, may we respond properly with repentance. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. And repentance means to turn away and go the other direction. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we've studied just these five or six verses this morning, rather, Lord, as we've looked at them, certainly you've given us the framework for a Christian life. Brotherly love, hospitality, remembering the prisoners, marriage being honorable, not living in adultery or fornication, not living covetously, being content with what we have and not living in anxiety, but trusting that you are our helper and I will not fear. And Lord, the truth is we need your help to do all of those things. We can't do them on our own. They don't come naturally. My prayer, Lord, would be this morning as we all seek your face, as you would convict us where we need to be convicted. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Minister where we need to be ministered to. Lord, may we be people who don't try to fit Christianity into the culture, who don't try to conform to a culture to make it work. May we be people who realize we have the truths of your word to stand on. And they're not shifting. They're not changing. And what's true today will be true tomorrow and next month and next year. In fact, the truth of these words will be carried into eternity. It will be the only thing that remains along with the souls of men. So Father, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, may this morning be the time where they give their life to you. May they ask for forgiveness for their sins. And Lord, if there's someone here who's been away from you, or perhaps is heavily convicted in one of these areas, may they repent and turn away. And for the young people that are here, Lord, would you protect them from the culture? Lord, it's an area that we have to live in. May we always recognize your truths and stand on them. May we not be swayed by arguments that the culture would bring our way. In Jesus' name.